1: and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering.
0: How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right. Hey, listeners. Uh, Another Fortress on a Hill podcast Uh, in another crazy week, in another crazy year. I mean, how many people have seen 2020? Am I right? Question mark as people's status on any sort of social media. Uh, It's been nuts. Uh, We've had so much to talk about. Frankly, I think we're not covering so many of the issues that we should be because there's just too much. But luckily, we've had some guests come on who take the conversation in directions we might not think to go in and uh, kind of check some blocks for us because we don't have time any longer to do special episodes on each event. So there's nobody better uh, to do that, to to just talk about a range of issues in my experience uh, than Steve Poikinen, who is our guest today. Uh, he is the host of Slow News Day, which I think some listeners are familiar with already. Um, not just because I had been on it a few months ago, but in general. And he also co-hosts the Free Assange Online Vigil series. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Slow News Day podcast, you know, as it describes itself, and I think this is great, uh, chronicles late-stage capitalism from the heart of the empire, right? And then brings on guests, you know, who are fighting to change that. But you know, I, I think that's just a really Great way of putting it, right? So, late stage capitalism, late stage uh, empire—these are related things. So, when I was on uh, slow news day with Steve, we had a pretty great, I thought, wide-ranging, maybe even zany in a good way, conversation. (laughs) And uh, so, this should be interesting and in a good way. And so, I'm I'm really glad to have you, Steve, and thanks for doing it.
2: Oh well, thank you for having me. I I appreciate it, and uh, and yeah, it's I've been able to talk to you uh, a couple of times on the vigil and then on my show and I've uh, I've I've felt really really good about those conversations I thought they went really well
0: yeah absolutely yeah there's there's definitely a bit of a flow and more than once now you know your questions you've asked or discussions we've had have kind of informed an article series or something that I wrote because as you know I'm been doing a lot of lebanon stuff and then you were the first person to kind of ask about that because the bombing essentially happened like the day of just a few hours right before uh, i believe our last assange vigil so uh but before we get there which i think we totally should um because i think there's something interesting about why there are so many conspiracy theories about lebanon and we'll so we'll get there but maybe just uh give us a little background on you right so in other words everyone does this but you know your personal kind of background and journey to where you're at today, you know the the, the key highlights of what you've done and well, where you're at now, and well, why do you give a shit, Steve right? Like why aren't you watching real housewives like everybody else? That's what I want you to answer <laughs> well
2: uh i i'm I'm going to be a hundred percent truthful here uh i am uh i'm i'm forty two years old, and in the early nineties. I was introduced to both Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and Clean LSD and uh after that you you kind of you, you look at the world a little bit differently and I uh I had been involved in a political campaign uh before I could even vote I was 16 years old. I was a campaign volunteer for a guy named David McIntosh, who was running for Congress in Indiana's 6th District, uh, which is the district that Mike Pence was a representative from uh, before he became governor. Uh, It gave me an insider's view on just how craven, ridiculous and full of bs and lies uh at politics are. Uh so I I decided that that would be about the last time that I involved myself in politics as a volunteer, but I began writing about it. Um, in uh in 2008 I was part of the Nation's election blog team. Uh I was subsequently Uh, They didn't put it as I was being fired. Uh, They put it as I was uh, invited to become successful elsewhere. Uh, When I I wrote an article for them in, in the summer of 2008, detailing just how far to the right candidate Barack Obama was and how far to the right he would govern. That was not a narrative that the nation was willing to push. Uh, so they they canned me, <laughs> and I was subsequently blacklisted from getting a job as a, a uh, political journalist in every form of legit media. So I just start, I decided to start my own show. Uh, and I've been able to have incredible conversations with people who at least agree on one thing. And that is, we can't begin to have an honest conversation about policy or politics or government uh, unless we have access to primary source information that doesn't have to go through a spin machine before we're allowed to process it or digest it. Uh, and so out of that you know, post-partisan framing, Um, that's when I got invited to be a part of Action for Assange and co-host these Vigil series, uh, which we've been doing now for, I believe, 59 consecutive weeks. Uh, And that has just been one of the most bizarre and incredible experiences of my life. And I say that as a guy who has uh, who has been through some stuff and and seen some stuff, I don't know if I can swear on your show or not. So I'm trying. to Oh,
0: absolutely, you can. Okay, <laughs> yeah. it's not uh, it's not acceptable. It's encouraged. No, just...
2: Okay. Well, well, Danny <laughs> Pearson, I I've seen some shit. Right. Um, right. But uh, th- this is, uh, you know, delving into. Th- how the national security state operates, how the the five eyes global information sharing network operates and, uh, and how journalism is weaponized and and the way that it's targeted to individuals or groups of individuals uh, has just been one of the more incredible experiences of my life.
0: And and I'm, I'm kind of glad that you, you know, I mean, the way you describe it, there, obviously, there's probably a thousand different threads that lead anyone to something. But this idea of, you know, kind of the, well, first of all, where you're from, I mean, this whole, the Indiana connection is interesting to me because, uh, you know, I first did a little canvassing for I will admit, Obama, uh, while still in the army, in Southern Indiana, right, because I've been stationed at Fort Knox, as you know, right across the border. And yeah, you know, Indiana is an interesting state, right? It's uh, I mean, when Obama won it in 2008, it was like the first time since '64, and people don't realize like the Klan was big there, like super big for a long time, and that there's yeah, just like fact, a lot of bellwether there. The county that I grew up in.
2: And the county that, that Mike Pence represented for a number of years is where the, uh, the quote-unquote capital of the Klan uh, was housed, a little town called Elwood, Indiana. When I was in high school, um, we would go, you know, we'd go there for, I, I think my, the time I went there was for track. Uh, Anderson, Indiana, where I'm from, is a, a very mixed city. Uh, in terms of like, you know, black people, white people, Mexicans, things like that. Uh, uh, it's the the intersection of agriculture and industry because it was a huge GM town until NAFTA. In fact, Chris Hedges, uh, uh, one of one of your uh, fairly frequent guests, uh, right, mentioned right. Anderson, Indiana in America, the Farewell Tour. Uh, and just right, kinda as right. an example of what happened when NAFTA was passed and how it affected towns in the Rust Belt. Uh, But when I went for a track meet, there were signs up, this is in the mid-90s, early 90s, signs in people's yards about N-word go home. And we got there, and at the high school, there were Confederate flags with nooses hanging off of them and stuff like that. I did not enjoy uh, having multiple races come to their town for sporting events. It it was uh, surreal.
0: Wow. Yeah. And, and of course, the, you know, the Mike Pence factor to me is a demonstrative of the longstanding connection. Right. Not for everyone, but there is a long-standing connection, or at least kind of correlation, between this like evangelical thread in American society and this like racial and clan thread. It's uh, it's very rarely an accident, right? It's very it's very rare that the two haven't been in some ways connected. And I'm sure that you saw some version of that growing up. Would that be a, a fair assessment?
2: Absolutely. One one white gloved hand washes the other. It, um, there there's unlimited amounts of religious justification for bigotry for racism if you want there to be uh, and you see this where um, you know the area where I grew up it was outside of town very rural uh, in, in fact the house that, that I grew up in was sandwiched in between like three plots uh, of farmland um, but you get this I I guess pockets of a, a homogenous culture, even though you uh, you live in a town, you know, you quote unquote live in a town that has, uh, has people from all backgrounds. And there are people who maintain uh, their, their ethnic purity as such as it is, um, shrouded in religion, and don't see the disconnect. And when you try to talk to them about the disconnect, the the first thing they do is tune you out immediately. <laughs> you know, like it's impossible to have these conversations with people who have been taught their entire lives that, you know, they are, are genetically superior to another human being based solely on their skin color or nation of origin. And uh, it's just, I mean... Really hard for, for, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around uh, because that's not the way that that we were brought up, you know, but our neighbors were. And and so uh, no no small amount uh, of, you know, interpersonal conflict. Um, And I got the hell out of that state as soon as I could. Uh, i i think that that it's called the crossroads of america for a reason because you're not just supposed to stop and stand in the crossroads you're supposed to keep moving so right. i did right.
0: no that's i mean that's just such an interesting like geographical but like cultural and historical background and i i think that there are very few guests like there are very few people from any particular place where there's not something about where they're from that informs a, you know, a degree of, uh, what happens later. But then you also sort of describe this media journey, right? Like doing some presidential stuff on the blog for the nation. And, and I guess what I wanted to ask is, um, your experience in media, right. As you push through, or probably some of your frustrations with that, it sounds like reasonably, uh, how did they sort of inform your work for action for Assange? In other words, like, why does Assange matter would be the big question. And then like the smaller question is like, how does that connect to your experiences with media leading into that? Right. Um,
2: Excellent questions there. Uh, So Julian Assange matters and, and WikiLeaks matters because we do get to see that unspun primary source material that allows people to make up their own minds about how the world works and, and how governments truly operate, uh, how both public and private security agencies operate, who they're targeting. And we're, we're kind of on the precipice uh, of determining whether or not investigative journalism as a thing continues to exist if julian assange is uh i we we don't use the word extradited anymore we got lectured by a french gentleman named victor dada dadaj uh as to we should stop using the language of empire when we communicate this julian assange is not going to be extradited to the united states as much as he's going to be renditioned uh, and it's going to Take place in broad daylight in the courtroom, a, a, a kidnapping of a journalist and publisher who will be brought to the U.S., placed under special administrative measures and more or less tortured to death uh, under a 175-year sentence for publishing the truth, for publishing vetted, verifiable, unquestioned documents. There's never been... Uh, uh, a single point in WikiLeaks history where there was a lawsuit that determined the material that they published was false. They have a 100% accuracy rating, making them unique in the world of journalism. Um, And we, and because we don't get that from other outlets, because we don't have a, uh, you know, our version, because we have our version of state media, what we get are think tank talking points and propaganda and, you know, red team, blue team spin. Um, so WikiLeaks is incredibly unique. Julian Assange is incredibly unique because what they're doing is providing us, uh, they're providing us with the ability to make up our own minds. And that's not something we normally see in media. Um, And of course, you know, 17 charges under the Espionage Act and an additional now expanded conspiracy to commit computer intrusion charge uh, there. The U.S. Department of Justice is trying to criminalize investigative journalism. And if that's allowed to happen, we only have state approved news segments. We only have national security state talking points. And that's not that's not how a free society functions, and, and the way that that has informed what we do, and the way that it's shaped what we do, is uh, is we try to emulate the model of WikiLeaks's scientific journalism, which is looking at a document or looking at a set of documents or a te- you know transcribe testimony, and um, and dissecting it, not letting. Outside influences, personal biases, things of that nature, uh, take over too much in our reporting. I mean, certainly we do have a bias. We would like to see Julian Assange free and alive and working. Um, But (laughs) that, that also means that we personally believe that there should be 80 or a hundred or 500 outlets doing exactly what WikiLeaks is doing. And the competition in media shouldn't be who can get the highest ratings based off of infotainment. It should be who is dealing in accuracy. Yeah. And, that, that
0: and, and yet there aren't, right? I mean, no. <laughs>
2: not, not only are there not other video. Julian
0: Assange WikiLeaks sources, there's also – no talk of him on the media like this trial right it's, it's blacked out to some extent this
2: trial determines the course of journalism going forward this is the single biggest press freedom trial in my lifetime certainly in the media blackout over it it is it, at first it was frustrating then it was frightening and now it's just tragic uh because There are a lot of people who are walking around acting like they might not be next. And we're talking about the reporters who published the Afghan papers through the Washington Post last year. Um, uh, There was a, a, the Australian Broadcasting Company uh, published their own version of the Afghan papers. And that was material that came through a whistleblower, uh, the Australian army lawyer named David McBride He's facing 50 years, and the journalist who published it is also uh, subject to charges. So, I, we've seen just since the George Floyd protests began, over 700 journalists who have been shot, tear gassed, shot at, locked up, detained. Uh, this is a, a global war on journalism, and the public is largely unaware. Because if the news doesn't tell them about it, if they're not being told what to think and how to think about it, they don't think about it. And this goes double for politicians. We only heard Julian Assange's name once or twice in the entire Democratic primary, and that came out of Tulsi Gabbard's mouth, who was already being smeared as a Russian asset and an Assad apologist. Uh, So if your pet politician isn't talking about this, if your Congress critters, aren't talking about this, then you, as an individual citizen, aren't focused on it. It goes the exact same for your know, content creators and journalists, people involved in YouTube and that that kind of deal. If you, you essentially train your audience, uh, if you can follow this for a moment, as a content creator, we train our audiences and we give them areas of interest that are based on our areas of interest. And if all you're doing with your show is covering the day-to-day of an illegitimate election in a horse race for, you know, clicks and AdSense revenue, then you are training your audience to only respond to that subject. And it closes them off from being open to hearing about what is going on with Julian Assange or with Lebanon or with Syria, uh, any place that the empire has expanded to. I don't, I never hear a content creator talk about uh, the, the ramped up role of AFRICOM over the last seven to 10 years. You know, it, it's um, the way that, that we monetized thought and put it out on these platforms has allowed for rigid
0: control of the conversation.
2: Do you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the AFRICOM thing. Cause yeah, Henry, I'll turn it over to you, but like this foreign policy connection is huge.
1: So I'd like to discuss Chelsea Manning and her relationship with uh, Julian a little bit. Okay. Um, Chelsea, of course, you know, went to she went to major media outlets like the New York Times and the Washington Post before refusing to, or who both refused to take any of the documents before she contacted Julian and, and WikiLeaks. Now, I served two tours in Iraq, so the Iraq War logs, among other topics in, in her releases, are an incredibly precious resource to me, along with Chelsea herself. The fact that uh, an active duty soldier Shows humanity over militarism it means the world to me Steve I was I was wondering if you could discuss a little bit about the relationship between Chelsea and, and Julian how he helped her in those early days of the Obama administration, and do you honestly think the US government will ever leave her alone, whether as trying to target Assange with the uh, recent grand juries or uh, other activists
2: um, wow. So uh, let, I'll, I'll, I'll answer the second question first. Uh, and uh, I would love to say, yes, Chelsea will be left alone to, you know, the stream on Twitch and and not discuss anything related to, uh, her her incarceration or her reincarceration or her torture or the role she played in changing the way that millions of Americans saw the U.S. military in the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. However, uh, we we live in an empire. We the citizens of empire are subjected to the whims of the rulers, and we saw this with Chelsea Manning uh, in that. The way that her sentence was commuted instead of her receiving a full pardon, uh, she was then subject to being reincarcerated, which she was uh, all for pointing out the secret and illegal nature of the grand jury process um, i i I'm an activist and and, and so you know I, I, inside there's a core of hope within me. Um, It's kind of protected by this, you know, layer of cynicism. Um, But I I do, I always maintain hope that we're going to win this. I always maintain hope that uh, Chelsea Manning will live a, a full and long life for the rest of her days without being subjected to the whims of empire Um, but I, I know that, uh, that should a, a reason be manufactured to haul her back in front of another secret grand jury, um, then this process will start up all over again. And, uh, what she did and how she did it. It not only exposes war crimes and fraud and abuse and torture, but it exposed the hubris of the military in that nothing that she gave to Julian Assange was password protected. She did not even need a username or a login to get that material. It was just sitting there for anyone who had access to that network to see. Um, So what, what Julian did in terms of helping her uh, was, you know, he certainly gave her her avenues that she could explore uh, within that open network, open to her network. Um, But as soon as she became a, a suspect, Um, through an organization called Freedom of the Press Foundation that Julian had set up with John Perry Barlow in in the background uh, to where WikiLeaks and Julian wouldn't be in the forefront of this organization, Uh, they raised a substantial amount of money for her legal defense fund. He, uh, He spoke on her behalf for years and years and years and highlighted... Just he called it punishment as process uh, for what was being done to Chelsea Manning while she was both in Leavenworth and then uh, in different um, in in different prisons. Uh, you can't you can't uh, you can't look at at I don't know years and years of videotape of of him speaking on this. Without thinking, compared to the rest of the media, this is so far above and beyond what any other publishing outlet has ever done for a whistleblower, that the only thing that you're left uh, to kind of take away from it is not only does this man care about this person, but he, um, <laughs> he's, he's fighting for her as much as she fought to not be broken by the system that she spoke out against like there seems to be a very deep mutual and abiding respect between the two of them i I hope that that answers your question if it didn't let me know or follow up and and i'll try and
1: oh absolutely no no you you totally hit the hit the nail on the head um how do you think her story has uh this might be a, a little too abstract but if you'll forgive me how do you think her story and her journey has changed whistleblowing uh you know is 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 it's just such such an incredible story and um i ho- i hope to meet her sometime I, I i i don't know what the status is of her life you know right now i know that as as was her time in prison before that she was horribly treated and um i honestly hope that she finds a home other than the united states so that she might have some kind of peace going forward with her life but no it's just a just an incredible story and uh an incredible you know path forged by her
2: i uh, currently she's in brooklyn new york and uh and she she's a twitch streamer uh four days a week thursday through sunday from i believe uh 4 to 7 p.m. Pacific. Uh, so you can actually check in with her and you can leave a comment letting her know that, that you appreciate her. Um, they, they don't really go into her story or discuss it on the Twitch stream. Um, but you can, I, I encourage people to just drop by and say, hey, thanks, we love you, uh, and, and then split if you want to. Um, but what she kind of she kind of broke the Obama administration's war on whistleblowers uh, and the end result of her treatment uh, of the torture that she had been subjected to by the Obama administration, set up uh, internal protections for whistleblowers going forward after about 2015. Um, it, changing in so many ways you know at least on paper the protections that whistleblowers now have uh, prior to prior to the manning leaks, it was purely open season on whistleblowers and even inside uh, individual organizations, be they public or private, there was no sort of of safety net there was no on paper protection for what they were uh if they chose to blow the whistle so in terms of that now whether it's enforced and upheld is entirely different and purely arbitrary in my opinion um but we never would have had that had people of all all different walks of life who may have, you know, didn't have anything to do with the military or with trans rights or, uh, you know, activism in general. Um, we're so captivated by her story, and we're so simultaneously like horrified and, uh, and then filled with uh, that. I, I, you know, the kind of like butterflies you get with new knowledge, or at least that I get with new knowledge, like she opened up so many people's eyes to the horrors of the, the occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and I think that, or I hope that if we have a history 100 years from now, the history itself will be incredibly kind to her because she really was a hero.
1: Absolutely, and that's that's how we treat her here. The guys and I love doing the podcast. Being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone, whom you like might think might be affected by it. Young people looking to join the military or parents advocating for one, conscientious citizens who care about the violence the U.S. wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for females and minorities and inflicts on minorities around the globe, and anyone else you think it might affect, please take a moment pause the episode, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to, uh, to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing all the new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So, let's bring out these honorary producers. And they are Will Renz, Fahim Shirazi, James Zobar, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P, Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, Tristan Oliver, Marwan Marwan, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, You can always contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com. Make sure you check for promo codes before you order. And now, let's get back to the podcast.
0: You know, one of the things that is interesting about all this is... You mentioned how if anybody, you know, defends Julian Assange, defends Chelsea Manning, speaks up for press freedom and their role as representative of it, then the reflex, of course, is that they're a Putin apologist or, you know, uh, or Lackey or Assad on Putin's behalf. And I was thinking about that. Steve, I don't know if you've seen or Henry, that Rogan clip where uh i think it's barry weiss or wh- whatever her name is the uh, new york times journalist is on
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah good re-
0: yeah she says to rogan like when he brings up all the different candidates that are in the race like just to get her think her view on it as soon as he says tulsi gabbard she's like oh come on she's an assad toady and then of course he like asks to follow on like well why do you say that but i think he was looking for like well what's the evidence that she's a toady and weiss is like kind of like I don't, she wasn't even sure what toady meant she was like i think i'm using that word correctly and what she struck me goes, about it "Jamie,
2: could you look that up real quick
0: <laughs> yeah it's, it's an incredible clip and like i just rewatched it the other day and in other words like you're a columnist at the new york times the paper of record you're using a word that is essentially the same as saying someone is like all but a traitor a sitting congresswoman Right, and you miss. You're like either using or misusing. You're not even sure what it means. But the pejorative is to say this: this sitting congresswoman, veteran of our wars, is essentially a, a traitor. And you don't even have to get that right, or even know anything about the Assad family or the Syrian civil war. You can ask on the air for the producer of that show or like the administrator to look up the word to make sure you're using the pejorative of her being a traitor. Right, and there are no consequences. Like that to me was like the mainstream media and microcosm. Like if so you, if you defend like Tulsi had, you say any words about Assange, like you can be smeared as a traitor to your country, despite being a veteran and there's no consequences for like the mainstream media. So it really does. I think it kind of links together your experience in media leading up to this and then your fight for Assange now, right? I don't really have a question. I just want to know what you think about that.
2: No, I, I, my favorite thing about that, my favorite thing about the Barry Weiss interview and what happened uh, the, as a, a fallout from that, is it gave us a brand new word in the English lexicon, and that word is smugnerent, and it's, uh, I, I don't have the exact dec- definition in front of me. It's part of the Urban Dictionary now, uh, right. but it's the, it's where. Um, uh, you know a basic fundamental misunderstanding of how the world works meets with the hubris that you only get when you have the kind of institutional security that barry weiss has um it's it is it's a it's a microcosm of, of of establishment media uh and uh and credit to um to the jimmy Dore show for showing that clip in a live show per, uh, that, that spawned the word smugner It, um, I, <laughs> it's, I tell people it really is a on, perfect word I, I tell people on my show all the time that we live in a fucking cartoon and, it, and this is just one of those things that yeah it's a joke but it's starting to not be a joke anymore we really do live in a cartoon and, and that clip uh, and that that little scene there that happened on Joe Rogan's show is just so indicative of the cartoon. And people still listen to Barry Weiss. I don't know how many anymore. Right, Plus, right. You know, I mean, she was able to keep her job after that. I remember a day when Jon Stewart went on Crossfire and completely obliterated both Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson. And within like, Two months the show was completely cancelled because a comedian was able to shine a little light on what the show was and how it operated they were so embarrassed they couldn't keep doing it anymore and now it's like well, we can just censor this person we can just bury them by algorithm we can uh, we can remove their YouTube channel or we can take away their ability to make a living by doing you know independent media content creation and, and there's no um, there's no, I, I get, well, I guess this is all an outward manifestation of fear, but there's, there's, uh, seemingly no fear on the part of the people in power, uh, because all they have to do is enter a few keystrokes and somebody's Twitter account is gone or somebody's YouTube channel is gone or their website gets taken down and these decisions are made, Seemingly arbitrarily, but it always goes one direction, Danny. It always goes against the people who are speaking outside of the narrative, regardless of where
0: they fall politically. Absolutely. Uh, And the thing about her not losing her job, the thing about her still working at the New York Times to me is, you know, indicative of why they don't fight for Assange. You know, and I said this the first time that I was on the vigil with you guys, and I'm sure you've heard it a thousand times, but this whole idea of, like, the mainstreams choosing not to stand with Julian because, you know, they are the toadies, really, for the establishment, but, you know, regardless, they don't stand with him. And then there's one school of thought that thinks that that means that this is, like, the Nazi analogy where someday they're going to wish... They had because, you know, they're going to go for the Assange's in the world. And next thing you know, they're going to come for them, you know, like the Jews, the communists, all that stuff. But actually, in a sense, that assumes that they don't already work for the state. It's the Washington Post, the New York Times. But the fact that she still has her job, the fact that, you know, people still read these folks and that you don't even have to know what you're talking about to be assigned the beat of a certain subject for the paper of record of America, you know, is to me instructive that maybe it's the second one, right? Maybe it's the latter. Maybe they've worked for the state for a long, long time and That's why the fight, or part of why the fight, you know, action for Assange, et cetera, is so important.
2: There's a a book by Joel Whitney called Finks, F-I-N-K-S, and the the subtitle is uh, How the CIA Tricked the World's Best Journalists. And it goes, the, the book opens in the late 40s right after World War II, and it talks about how the CIA set up all of these journalistic outlets all over the planet and that yes the editors knew that they were working for the CIA and yes the the journalists in many cases knew that they were working for the CIA um, and they still had the they still had their own hubris inside of them to uh, that made them think like okay well it's just this one article you know, or it's just this one angle that, that I'm being a parrot for, but I'm still my own person. And as you get further and further into the book, you discover that no, in fact, their lives have been completely taken over by this organization that, um, that if they don't, write the words that they're told then they're subjected to being targeted they're subjected to surveillance their bank accounts can disappear their home lives can be destroyed and that has so permeated the culture of media in the last Jesus what is that 70 years now 70 years uh, that that if people aren't fully aware that they're functionaries of the state, it's only because they've diluted themselves well enough, you know what I mean, like they know they they know that they're doing state reporting, they know what they're allowed right. to print, and they know the limits of dissent that they're they're allowed to share, uh and they 'll never cross that line because crossing that line could get them one hundred and seventy five years in a supermax. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, absolutely. So it's like a self, you know, it. it they're going to self censor. And I think initially, maybe it comes from, oh, you know, like they want to protect their sources, or they want to, you know, keep their job. And then, you know, that's bad enough that that's been going on. I mean, I think I, I've read about, you know, how Chris Hedges has talked about how he He was surprised by how many journalists, you know, in Bosnia or any of the other places he worked would just self-censor. They didn't even have to be told by the military or the government, hey, don't report this. But now what we're finding out is that there's a whole other angle, the Orwellian rather than the, you know, Huxley angle, which is we will really put you in jail for two human lifespans back to back if you embarrass us. I mean, really, that's it too, right? If you embarrass us, that seems to be the key.
2: That, that's what it comes down to, ultimately. Yeah, when you when you thumb your nose at, at the powers that be, whether they're in positions of real power or perceived power, like like Congress, um, when you thumb your nose at them, it, the the reaction is across the board. Damn, you know the, the smears. Um, it the reaction is to destroy you and people who are aware of that will absolutely engage in self-censorship because they they've been able to enjoy a certain amount of personal freedom or personal comfort uh in in being a journalist or in being a part of even the independent media i can't tell you how frustrating it is to be a member of the independent media uh, and an advocate for Julian Assange, because even in, uh, even in quote unquote, indie media, that self-censorship is so prevalent because of the way that, that thought has been monetized and because your livelihood is connected to, you know, not violating a terms of service agreement that you didn't read (laughs) that, uh, that has been put into place by, you know, Alphabet Inc. or uh, Google's parent company, um, or Google or YouTube. The uh, YouTube just recently announced that they're going to take down any videos that discuss hacked material. And that puts a giant target on my show, and it puts a giant target on Action for Assange, of course, because... We're showing you information from WikiLeaks basically two times a week. And uh, that's, that's not just censorship. That's not just Orwellian or Huxleyan. It, it is, uh, my God, it's, it's Stalinist. <laughs> you know, the, the Stasi would look at the way that the U.S. operates right now and be like, my God, I didn't know I could do that. Did you know we could do that? Did you know we could get them to do that? I didn't know. They they would be floored at, at the the rate at which people intentionally hide under a desk to avoid the truth.
0: Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. Like the idea that the Stasi has something to learn from the U.S. You know, you know, it's common among like historians to bring up like, oh, you know, like. Hitler sort of respected a lot of, you know, America's eugenics programs and, you know, the British Empire and what the Americans did to the, to the Native Americans. And, and, and I think, you know, there was some truth in that. And he took it to the next level. But then you also look at today's media space and you can't help but wonder exactly what you said are, you know, are the Putins of the world like who are supposed to be the worst and much worse folks than Putin? Are they looking at the United States going, oh, that's how you do it? you extradite a guy from an allied country after like stealing him out of an embassy and all this and then you put him on trial and you get your media, your independent world respected supposedly media not to talk about it. That's power, right? I mean that that is gangster. Is what that That's is. And, like, if flex, I, I I'd want to do that if I was a dictator.
2: Oh yeah. I Ralph Nader uh he was talking about uh, political parties when he said this, but it's, it's true for media, too. Uh, the only difference, Nader said, between Republicans and Democrats is the velocity at which your knees hit the floor when the donors come calling. The only difference between state me- media and independent media or establishment media and independent media um, and i'm going to i'm going to say it's 95% of independent media the only difference is they're tailoring their message to confirm the biases of a particular ideology but at no point are they actually educating their audiences at no point are they challenging their audiences and and what we have is this like sick Empty discussion about things that we that that are either fabricated out of whole cloth, like Russiagate, uh, or um, just there to confirm the biases of, well, okay, red team is good or Trump is good or uh, Joe Biden is good or, uh, you know, maybe Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is is good. And that's it. That's the end of the story. Like you can point your finger and wag it at establishment media as an independent content creator, but almost in every case in every show that, that people have, they're still using mainstream establishment content as the baseline for their show. They're not going out and they're not interviewing independent journalists. They're not going out and they're not talking to, you know, members of, Julian Assange's legal team or, um, uh, like Laurie Love, someone who actually successfully fought off being extradited to the U S he's not getting a place to speak anywhere other than through like, uh, consortium news or the don't extradite Assange campaign. And, and again, this comes back to, you know, having a trained audience, the audience tunes out when you start talking about the death of investigative journalism, because it's not Bernie good or Nancy Pelosi bad, or Ted Cruz crazy, it, it's um, it, as disheartening as it is, it's also one of the things that gives me drive and makes me try even harder to you know find journalists who aren't afraid to speak outside of the narrative, which is why I had you on my show, Danny. You're, you're one of those guys. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. So and so um, is Vanessa Beely, and she'll be on tomorrow. I'm looking forward to that.
1: So I wanted to uh, ask about something from this past primary season among the Democrats. Um bernie sanders campaign did something really odd something that i didn't see coming and i'd I'd like your opinion on it he chose to publicly state that he would no longer use the espionage act against whistleblowers now it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility for somebody like bernie but even still i felt it was an incredible gesture steve I'm, i'm curious how did you view this news from the sanders campaign earlier this year Um, We said,
2: prove it. We said, prove it. And, and name names and talk about why the espionage should not be used to prosecute whistleblowers. And the response that we got back was, uh, oh, well, we don't want to go into specifics. Um, And it felt like, it felt like a, a, I don't know, kind of a cheap trick. Like it did, like it's possible that Bernie Sanders doesn't, you know, would not want to to use the Espionage Act to prosecute whistleblowers. It's possible, but Bernie's entire career, uh, with the exception of voting against the Iraq war that one time while supporting every subsequent funding bill, um, has been to roll over for the national security state. So, it, you know, and I believe it was Ryan Grimm that he said that to. I'm not 100% on that. I know he did, like, a joint interview with AOC. Uh, Ryan Grimm was the interviewer, and uh, Ryan Grimm specifically brought up Reality Winner. And before Bernie could even get a word out, like, AOC was going, oh, well, no, 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 no. We're not here to talk about specifics. So, to me, that that came off as more of a – platitude than a campaign promise. Um, I would like to think that we do have elected officials that understand how dangerous it is to use the espionage act to prosecute a whistleblower. But even if they understand the danger in it, the odds of them being able to go around or over or through the national security state, um are are pretty non-existent.
1: Yeah, I, I I felt very much that it was a it, it it seemed nice to hear it, but how was he going to follow through? And and it just it just seemed cheaper and cheaper as more time went on without additional follow through.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with that one hundred percent. I do, and so much of, of Bernie's campaign this time around, it was like he was phoning it in. Uh, He just he didn't have it. He he didn't have the heart for it. Um, My my personal opinion about Bernie Sanders is that he's a sheepdog for the Democratic Party. And his primary function is to keep people inside of a party that has never and will never represent them by giving them the false hope that, well, if you just elect enough of us, then eventually maybe we'll start to make a dent. And I, I don't, I'll put it this way, and, and I say this on Slow News Day, if you've got a machine and the machine was designed to kill 99% of us, your solution to the problems posed by that machine shouldn't be let's slap a couple shiny new parts on it every two to four years because then all you're doing is prolonging the life of a machine designed to kill you um and, and that's what you know progressive politics inside the Democratic Party is it's putting a couple of shiny new parts on that machine, thinking that that's going to solve the design problem instead of prolong the life of the machine. I hope that makes sense. I would still well oh,
1: scattered you know. oh absolutely
0: so uh, Steve, as we kind of close out, let me ask you, to your knowledge, was there? A mention of, you know, Assange or like the real issues of press freedom during the, what, four days or so of the Democratic convention? I mean, what, 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 it, it, what was there? I mean, it, was there any real discussion? And if so, was it even maybe the opposite <laughs> direction?
2: You know, I got to be perfectly honest here. I didn't watch a moment uh, of the DNC this year. I've seen a couple of clips. Um, but uh, uh, Tuesday night, while we were live on the air for the Assange vigil, uh, I had uh, my phone started vibrating, which is weird because it's always on mute. Uh, and it was an emergency evacuation order. Because the place the town that I live in Boulder creek california was uh, was being threatened by wildfire um, and it still is I had to evacuate i 'm about three hundred miles away from home right now uh, and, and don't have uh, a lot of answers about what's going on with my town. but I will tell you this from what i've gathered from the the dNC convention this year, it was a a show of solidarity with the good Republicans and any mention of press freedom is centered around, uh, Jim Acosta shouldn't have been removed from the white house press corps that day. Not, not that we have a systemic war on real journalism. Um, so the, when the Democrats frame something like press freedom, it's always going to revolve around the people who already have that institutional security, people who already have uh, the, you know, who are access journalists, not who are genuine. I'm going to expose the problems that that we have in this country, journalists. Uh, So with, with the DNC, it's, uh, it's always about optics. It's never about, um, it's never about getting to the core of a problem and solving it. it if we're talking about press freedom, then, again, it's always going to be about, like, let Jim Acosta speak, not let Julian Assange speak. If it's about diversity, it's diversity for optics' sake, never diversity of opinion.
0: Well, yeah, I, I admit that uh, in asking you, I should' have known better, of course. I was kind of hoping maybe you had uh, watched more than I had because uh, I did not have the stomach either, so you know I read the you know I read some transcripts and you know tried to just get the highlights. but man, I will tell you, I did not have it in me either because it's such a circus and uh, and really it's like a it's like a best in show like Christopher Guest style <laughs> pageant. It really is. I mean it's it's, a, it's just as absurdist. As that right, um, yeah. It, it was like one big kneel while wearing that like quasi African garb that Pelosi organized in Congress. It was that basically, you know, but for like four days and and like their whole thing.
2: And, and look, I, you know, they they rigged another primary this year, and it's the second time that this has happened in a four year period where we just had a blatantly illegitimate primary and and they did it to put forth a candidate in Joe Biden that both on paper and in rhetoric wants to govern to the right of Donald Trump, except for a, uh, except for completely symbolic and empty gestures. And they're, they're hoping that, you know, four years of nonstop fear porn about the bad orange man will be enough to carry a man in joe biden who let's be perfectly honest has instant grits where his brain should be it's a it's a sad state of affairs
0: well i mean these are all like These are the issues, right? The the Assange story and the stuff about the press that you're talking about is the one issue or one of a few that's related to everything. There's like no way around that. And so, you know, as we kind of wrap up here, I I just think that what I'm so thankful for is uh, that we got to know each other, to, to have these conversations, to continue them, because if... We can make fun of the DNC all day. We can talk about the empire all day and we could talk about that Rogan appearance, but you know, what you have kind of identified is that the Assange story touches it all because press freedom is at the root of it. And, you know, until we have that and we're fighting in its name, this is what we almost deserve. This is what we get. And so, yeah, with that, Steve, I just want to thank you for coming on and then hey, tell our listeners, uh where they should be checking you out you know in the next couple like week or two but just in general as well
2: okay certainly and thank you so much for for having me on your show i am i'm a i'm a fan of this show i listen to it regularly it's an honor to be here uh you've had some incredible guests so i'm a little bit humbled and terrified (laughs) that i'm not going to measure up um but uh you can find me uh if you're looking on youtube uh, you type in slow news day podcast. Um, I'm also on the Rockfin and D live as slow news day. Uh, I am slow at slow news day show on Twitter. Um, the action for Assange are, are both our, uh, everything is action the number four Assange. Uh the YouTube channel, the Rockfin channel, the website, action number Um we put out weekly calls to action. So um Anyone can be a part of this. This is a a intentionally decentralized network of activists. Um, We are going back to Washington, D.C. We did in February for the first week of Julian's show trial. We will be back uh, from the 5th of September through the 25th because the hearing, they set aside three weeks for it. So we will be holding demonstrations and panels and events uh, throughout Washington DC. Um, if you can, please join us for that. We would love to have more boots on the ground, as it were. Uh, and this is both to you and to your listeners. If, if any of right, your right. listeners are in the DC area, please uh during the the first three weeks of September come out and, and see us and be a part of this. Um, because again, this is a biggest press freedom trial uh, of our lifetimes is taking place in virtual silence and it is incumbent on us as you know people who uh people who want to attain self-determination and to hold back the coming dystopia to stand together and fight for this
0: Well, Steve, you know, um, you can count on our support in you know, a number of different ways. Uh, We're going to plug stuff in the show notes uh, to get people, you know, who aren't already checking out slow news day, this, you know, the DC kind of uh, event and just prioritizing this. So um, we're super happy to have you and let's do it again. Let's keep going back and forth. You know, the three of us between each other's shows and uh, spread the word and, yeah this has been great thanks so much and uh do check out steve's uh various work because it is work
2: well thank you very much Uh, and you guys uh yeah you guys are incredible i i think what you do is vital uh to help people kind of pull back the curtain
0: on on u.s empire well, we're trying and I think we're all in the same fight. So, uh thanks so much and we'll do uh, we'll do more of this. We'll do more of this and uh, I have a feeling that there's going to be plenty to fight against for a long for a long. <laughs> I agree.
1: We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com itunes stitcher google podcasts patreon spotify you name it almost anywhere you listen we're already waiting for you and hey we're always in the market for more patreon supporters please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com and if you're not into giving us a monthly payment think about giving us a couple bucks on paypal the link is in the show notes Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I hope you'll pay attention. I will not de-